Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come today now to open your word, God, we thank you for what we've already been able to experience here together, Lord, in unity and in fellowship with one another, and fellowship with your Holy Spirit, God. We are so thankful for the testimony of Brock this morning. We're thankful for uh, the opportunity to lift up your praises, to sing of your glorious gift of life through the death of your Son. Jesus. God, we pray now that as we look at uh, uh, the issue of grace, the subject of grace, and how you have uh, given us um, so much more than we deserve, so much more than we could ever earn on our own. God, I, I pray that you would help us each to understand, take it to heart, and apply it to our lives and the lives that we live in our interactions with others, God. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So we're moving through the book of Philippians. We've uh, dealt with uh, three subjects already as it pertains to the issue of uh, encouragement. That's really what the book of Philippians is about. It's about encouraging fellow believers. It's about finding uh, the, the capacity to confront a chaotic world, a world that seems at times to be uh, out of control and, and just beyond our understanding and, and comprehension. How do we live a life in a world that is so messed up. <laughs> How do we do that? How do we respond to life and circumstances that sometimes confuse us, often frustrate us? Well, what we've seen so far is, is that there's, there's a bond that brings us together. There's a connection that believers have that we enjoy and that we celebrate and that we recognize here uh, as we worship together on, on Sunday mornings and as we meet uh, throughout the week and so forth. That bond helps us to, to see the world through a different lens. It helps us to, to understand what we've been called to and, and to find encouragement uh, from each other. We, we've also seen the issue of priorities. That's very important when you're, when you're dealing, especially with uh, a situation you don't understand, a situation that's constantly changing, that you have priorities that guide you, that, that you have certain things that, that shape your way of thinking that, so, so that whenever things get difficult or hard to comprehend, you have something to fall back on, something that you can use to, to drive your decisions, to help you to make good choices. And then last week we looked at the issue of, of unity, and in particular unity that grows out of humility, that we as Christians are called to follow the example of Christ and the humility that, that he demonstrated in coming uh, to dwell here on earth, that he demonstrated in dying the cursed death on the cross, that he demonstrated and walking uh, alongside us, uh, accomplishing so much uh, during his life here, revealing to us so much about what it means to, to be individuals who put others before themselves. Well, as we continue on in chapter 3 today, we, we come to the issue of grace, and in particular, how grace impacts our ability to walk, to stand firm. Again, in, in a chaotic world, one of the things we need is the ability to be able to stand strong, the ability to be able to, to, to uh, function and operate in a way that's logical when everything else around you is, is just going crazy. But where do we find that ability? Well, there's different things, different directions people have tried to go uh, over the years in terms of answering that question. Some have tried to, to build their lives or build their situations just on the issue of tradition. Well, this is what we've always done. This is how we've always 
dealt with this issue. This is how my family's dealt with it. This is how our country's dealt with it. This is how our church has dealt with it. And, and there is certainly some security on some level to be found in tradition. Tradition is by itself not a bad thing. Okay, It's not bad to have things that, that you can look forward to that, that bind you together, that connect you, that help you to, to view the world through a certain lens. But the problem with tradition is that it can prevent us from accurately seeing the world around us and engaging the world around us. Because people who are not from that tradition, people who are not traveling that same road that you're traveling, may not see and understand exactly why you're doing what you're doing. It may be very meaningful to you. It may be very helpful to you on, on many levels. But at the end of the day, our call as believers is to engage our culture. It is to confront our culture. It is to relate to our culture. It's to speak with our culture. And if we're only wrapped up in tradition, if that's the only thing that's driving us, then we will end up in a situation where we are no longer relevant, where we're no longer able to speak to a culture that needs to know what Jesus can accomplish, what Jesus can do in a life. A, a second thing that some people fall back on in terms of where they're going to stand or, or how they're going to function is simply self-preservation. I'm going to do whatever it takes for me to survive. And that's, that's a mindset that, that we see all the more happening uh, in our culture as, as people have, quote, different truths, as they say, or, or different perspectives on things. Well, I'm going to do things that protect and preserve me. And again, um, there is some level of security to be found in that. I mean, you're, you're relying on yourself in some sense uh, and so forth. And, and so there's something there. Um, there's certainly the... Know the idea of the self-made man or self-made woman in terms of the work ethic that goes along with that, and that's admirable to have that kind of uh, work ethic. But at the same time, you lose out on some important things. Number one, you lose out on being the witness that you've been called to be. As we looked at last week, the, the call to be a Christian is a call to die to yourself. It's a call to to put aside your own selfish ambitions and own selfish desires and to pursue the other, to pursue God and to pursue fellowship and relationship with others. But it, it, self-preservation can also be problematic and we lose out because we lose on the ability to find connection with our brothers and sisters, to find assistance, to find help in those times when life does become more than we as individuals can handle. A third thing that sometimes people rely on is their government. They, they rely on uh, the government to do certain things or, or to accomplish certain things, and certain people being in leadership and so forth. And I think we probably, I don't have to go into this too much, I think we probably learned this week that that's not a very steady thing to, to put your confidence in. Okay, It's constantly changing. It's constantly uh, in turmoil itself. So where do we find this ability to stand firm. What can we stand on? Paul's answer is grace. And what is grace? Well, grace is sometimes defined as unmerited favor. That means it's, it's God's favor to you that you didn't deserve. And that's a good definition of grace. I prefer the definition, it's God doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. I believe that's, that's how I would define or explain grace. That there are, there are limits to my ability. 
there are limits to what I can accomplish. Physical limits, mental limits, um, spiritual limits. There's things that I just can't do. And so if, if, if I function and I operate from the mindset of the things that I can't do, then, then what? I'm going to walk around fearful of failure. I'm going to walk around in a mindset and a perspective that's not engaging the culture, that's not relating to the world around me, because I'm going to think of all the things I cannot do. But grace is God coming in and doing things in me and through me and for me in such a way that I'm able to accomplish far more than I thought was possible. And that gives me what? That gives me encouragement. I don't have to worry about my abilities. I don't have to worry about my limitations because it's God that's doing the work through me. And, and so that's what, what Paul's going to argue here this morning, that, that we can function, we can, we can stand firm, we can operate, we can find encouragement in the fact that God is doing some amazing things through us. So let's take a look at this passage and, and put just a little bit more meat on that idea of being able to stand in grace and, and what that means. Paul begins in, in verse 1 of chapter 3 by saying, In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To, to, to write to you again about this is no trouble for me, and it's a safeguard for you. In other words, he, as he's getting ready to introduce this topic of grace and their ability to, to rejoice in life and to find joy even in the midst of chaotic situations, he says, I, I'm doing this again. We don't know if that's a second letter or, or a previous letter that he's written or he's referring to a previous message or what it is, but this is at least the second time that he's addressed this issue. And he says it's no problem to do so at all because grace is a safeguard to your walk. Grace is the ability to, to it's granting you the ability to function in this world. And from there, he then goes on to issue a warning. And his warning is simply this. Have a correct definition of grace. Understand what it is. Understand how it relates to your salvation and your relationship with God. And he says, essentially, confront those who have a false definition. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. What's he talking about mutilating the flesh? What, 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 what's going on here? Well, there were this group. They were called Judaizers. And they followed Paul wherever he went. Wherever Paul would plant a church, wherever he would, he would come in and he would express the, the grace of God and he'd see converts and he'd see people come to Christ and, and that church would be planted. It wasn't too long until this group would come to that church right after him. And what this group would say is, it's good that you want to be a Christian. It's good that you want to follow Jesus. It's good that you, that you want to understand God and all these things. But here are the rules for what you have to do to do that. And, one of the, and what they would typically bring up were Old Testament rules. You need to follow the food laws. Men, you need to be circumcised. You, you, you need to, you need to uh, abstain from, from certain things and certain activities. If you want to be a Christian, you first have to understand Judaism is what they would say. And they were very successful at, at getting a lot of churches to, to believe them because people were, were new believers and, and they were just learning these truths. And, and so when someone says to them, we're glad you want to be a believer, this is what it takes, 
Well, they're going to soak that in and they're going to start trying to apply those things. And Paul did not have a very good opinion of these individuals. In the book of Galatians, he says what they're preaching, what they're teaching is not the gospel at all. It's not the good news. It has nothing to do with how Jesus would have you function or relate. He says this addition of works to the subject of faith is contrary to what God has to say and what God wants you to understand about your relationship with Him. And so he has three terms for them that he applies, applies to this group here in, in Philippians. He says, first of all, they're dogs. And, and what exactly he's getting at here, it's kind of hard to exactly pinpoint what the image is he's drawing on because he doesn't go any further with it. He just says they're dogs. Okay, It could mean that, that they're unclean animals because dogs will eat anything. Okay, um, unless they're one of those little frou-frou dogs that, that's really picky about what they eat, a real dog will eat anything, all right? You, you can throw anything at them, and they're like, yeah, give me some more of that, whatever it was. I don't care, okay? Um, and, and in Judaism, that would render the dog unclean because they're eating stuff that's just nasty sometimes, okay? And so it could be that, that he's referring to these teachers as these dogs. They're, 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 they're corrupting the truth. And, and he considers them just nasty, nasty animals, nasty individuals. Okay. Um, it might be that he's drawing on the, the image of the dog as as someone who something, I should say, um, who goes just wherever they want without any thought for what anybody else has to say. Um, we learned this this past week. You got to make sure your gate's secured, not just at the top, but at the bottom. Okay, our our German Shepherd got his nose, got her nose through a portion of our gate, and decided if the nose can go, the rest of the body can too. And and she was gone. She was she was out there just just doing her thing. Dogs will do that. Dogs will go wherever a dog wants to go. And he he may be drawing on that image. It, it's really unclear exactly what image of the dog he's drawing on. But, but the idea is simply this. They're not wanted in this environment. The image is not of the cuddly dog or the dog that you love or you go hunting with or whatever. The image is of that dog that's there that you like. Get away, you nasty dog. Okay. The second image he has of them is that they're criminals. Okay. He says that they're evil workers is what this translation says. Other translation says they're criminals. That is, they take part in an evil enterprise. They're they're like the mafia. They're like the mob. They're 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 proclaiming something. They're 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 manipulating people to, uh, and and pushing people into a direction that's not right, and so therefore they're evil. And then he says they're mutilators of the flesh, and he, he's he's drawing the allusion to the, the idea of circumcision here, but he he's pulling it into the spiritual realm, and he's saying that at the end of the day, the gospel that they proclaim is unrecognizable. It's not recognizable as something that Christ himself proclaimed. It's not recognizable as something that Paul taught. And so he, he wants us to understand that this teaching of works alongside faith is not grace, and therefore it's not the gospel. In Ephesians, Paul says it's by grace that you are saved. Not of works lest any man should boast. And so essentially what he's saying here is, is if, if someone's adding something to grace, if someone's adding these words, 
then they're proclaiming something that doesn't has no power to save. And conf- we need to confront that. We need to deal with that. But he, he leaves that idea behind. He, he's not where he's going to spend most of his argument. He's seeking to encourage these believers. He's seeking to, to, to get them to, to see how grace affects their life and their walk. And, and so he, he goes on uh, to, to point out that, that grace is what we need because grace is what ultimately frees us. It's what changes us, transforms us. Verse 3, for we are the circumcision, the ones who worship the, the Spirit, worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. We don't put confidence in our works. We don't put confidence in our abilities. Why? Because they will fall short. We talked about this uh, uh, previously. Those, those people who think that they can earn their way to heaven or that they can balance the scales. Well, my good balances out a little bit more than my bad, so hopefully that'll be enough to get me by. Those people who have that kind of confidence or, or that kind of, of, of mindset are on the way to hell. Jesus has made it clear there's one way to salvation. It's not through works. It's not through our efforts. It's not through our good deeds. It's through a relationship with Him. Anything else is a lie. And, and I understand how tempting it is because I grew, up, I grew up in a home, a blue-collar home, and my dad instilled in me a work ethic that, that said, it doesn't matter what life throws at you, you just continue working hard. And, and you do the best you can, and, and you build your life, and you build a, a future for your family, and, and you take care of your family that way. Work hard. That, that's our work ethic here in the country. At least traditionally it has been. And that's great in the realm of life and work and relating to your family. But if that's what we try and apply to the issue of salvation, we are lost. Because here's the thing. You are not ever going to be good enough to equal God's standards of goodness. You're just not. He says in Isaiah that the best we can do is like filthy rags before His righteousness. The very best we can accomplish. And so, you can't do it. And so to build your life on your works and to build your life on, on what you can accomplish is to, is to go down a path of failure. And so he, he, he introduces this idea of, of how do we function different. He says, number one, we worship by the Spirit. We worship by the Spirit of God. It's not my capacity to worship that drives my relationship with God, that drives my praise, that drives my preaching, that drives my biblical interpretation. It's the Spirit empowering me. He says we we glory in Christ Jesus. We boast in Christ Jesus. It's not about my ability or your ability or our ability to do things. It's what Christ has accomplished. And we put no trust in the flesh. Now, if we truly internalize that, if we truly begin to live that, 
that is freeing. That helps us to be released from the stress of trying to achieve the best. As a professor at ATBU, I deal with all sorts of different students. Um, and there are those students that I interact with who even an A is not good enough. It has to be an A+. Plus. They're constantly striving, constantly pushing, constantly begging for more. Can you give me some extra credit? You have a 95 in my class. Can you give me some extra credit anyway? Whatever. <laughs> you know, they're just never settled. And they walk around the school, they walk around life just nervous and, and fretting and worried about never measuring up. For whatever reason, whatever the source that, of that belief is, I see it all the time. And I see some believers that are like that too. I have to serve. I have to do this. I have to do that. I have to do all these other things because I have to measure up. Christ says your salvation, not just to begin with, but continuing is the work that I do in your life. Jesus says it's my grace that takes a hold. It's my grace that, that, that directs you. This is why Paul says elsewhere, for freedom we have been set free. You weren't set free to be shackled and weighed down with more stress and more hardship. You were set free to live a life of freedom. To live a life of joy and peace and encouragement that can confront the chaos of this world with confidence. Because you're not standing on your own strength, you're standing on His. Paul continues this thought in verses 4 through 11 by, by illustrating just how frail and how useless works are. He says, I have reason for confidence in the flesh. In other words, Paul says, if there's anybody in this world, anybody in this world who lived a good life, it was me. He says, if anyone thinks he has ground for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. He says, let's take a look at my resume of good works. I have checked every box, every one of them is something I've accomplished. But he goes on. He says, everything that was gained to me, all of those things that I did, I now understand that they're a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. In other words, all of that stuff, compared to the value of just knowing Jesus, is worthless. He actually uses a pretty strong word here. He says, I've suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung. I consider them manure. Okay. That's how great and how wonderful it is to be connected with Jesus. That everything else is manure. Now he's not saying realistically everything in your life is manure compared to Jesus. He's saying relatively. Relatively. That's probably not a word, but that's what I'm going to say anyway. Okay. He's saying in comparison. Okay. 
there are all sorts of things in life that, that we understand through this way. When I met my wife, and we started dating, and we got engaged and got married, all other women faded into the background. None of them measure up to her. They still don't. When I got the job that I got at ETBU and pastoring here, all other jobs, all other opportunities fade in the ground. None of them matter. I love the students here. I love y'all. Y'all are great. I love serving alongside you. There are just those things in your life that when you're experiencing them, everything else just isn't it. Just isn't it. We sang earlier, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth, what? Will grow strangely dim. Strangely dim. In other words, they'll just fade away in the light of his glory and grace. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying all the things of this earth, all the things that I tried, all the things I attempted. When I finally met Jesus on that Damascus road, and, and when he came in and he changed my life, when he transformed the very essence of who I am, when he made me a new creature, everything else just faded away. And he became the priority. Paul's call here is to recognize that we can't serve two masters. Just as Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, Paul is saying here, you can't have your one foot in each world. That leads to an unstable reality. I used the illustration uh, in the first service. I think it, I think it's a good one. I'll let you be the judge of it, I guess. We've all had those moments where we get into a boat. Okay, and there's that moment when you're transferring from land to the boat, where you're kind of okay. Is this going to work? Okay, is that boat going to slide out from underneath me and I'm going to fall in the water? Or is it going to be steady enough? Or It's, it's that, that moment that you feel unease. Before the moment, you're, you're good. You're on land. After the moment, you're good. You're in the boat. But that moment of transferring is a moment that you're just really unsettled by. And what Paul is saying is that trying to live in two worlds where you're doing things by your own efforts and your own goals and doing things under grace and trying to, to function as God leads, is like living in that moment of unsteadiness where you don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know how it's going to play out. You don't know how it's going to work. And he calls us to live and to rely on that grace. Verse 10, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. Paul here is saying that, that my goal is to let go of my efforts and to be connected to what he accomplished. He goes on in verse 12, Not that I have already reached the goal, for I'm, or am I already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it, because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Here he tells us that the grace is not a reality in which we arrive at perfection immediately. 
It's a reality that begins a transformation, that begins a work in us, that helps us to grow in our faith and understanding. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a work that God does in us to make us new creatures. And he goes on to, to, to draw out this illustration. He says, forgetting what is behind and, and reaching toward that which is ahead. And forgetting what is behind is not forgetting the bad things, it's forgetting the good things that he's done. Forgetting those efforts, I'm going to reach out for what's ahead. Let all of us who are mature think this way. And he says, in any case, verse 16, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Here's the thing about grace. Grace is not God looking at your sin and shrugging. Oh, well, it's all right. You ever apologize to somebody and they say, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it. And you get the sense that, well, maybe they're going to worry about it. They're going to think about that. Or you don't feel like maybe you've been released from it. I think sometimes that's how people kind of view their salvation. They come to God. They say, God, save me. God, help me. God, deliver me. And then they leave that moment. They leave that decision. They leave that condition. Wondering, did I do enough? Am I good? Am I all right? Did, did I deal with all the sin I should have dealt with? Because I feel like there's some sins I didn't bring to God. I feel like there's some things I didn't take to God. And these are the people that end up on a regular basis walking down the aisle to rededicate. Almost Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Christ did not intend you to live your life through the lens of fearing whether or not you measure, measure up, fearing whether or not you've done enough. Grace is not some shrug that says, oh, it's okay, so that you can go on and then hope that someday he says, oh, it's okay. Grace looks at your sin in all that it is, the depth of it, the evilness of it, the wickedness of your heart the rebellion of your mind, the fact that you don't in and of yourself love God. It looks at that hatred and that anger and that hurt and that pain and all that's present and says, I see that and I forgive you anyway. That's grace. It sees every part of you, the parts you're not even willing to admit to yourself exist, and it says, I'm going to engage that. I'm going to change that. I'm going to transform that. And it begins a journey of growth and life and hope and joy and encouragement. But I think a lot of Christians look at that and, and they think, well, I gave my life to Christ. Why am I still struggling with all these sins? Why am I still struggling with all these things? And they get real hard on themselves. Or others get real hard on them. Well, you should be further along in your walk than you are right now. We need to view our Christian faith like we do the child. Okay. We've all been there when, when that child, 
first starts to move from crawling to walking. Okay. And they're not very good at it. They're, they're kind of wobbling all over the place, and they fall down a few times, maybe more than a few times. And all the interactions I've ever seen of a parent or a grandparent or, or even just a, a person who's standing by, seeing a kid try that, I've never seen a kid say, or a parent look at that kid who falls and says, you are such a failure. You should really be further along in this walk now than you are. Okay? Look, at your, look at your siblings. They're running and jumping and playing. Why aren't you there? That's not the attitude they have at all, is it? No. They're excited by the one little step. The one little wobble, that's great, that's amazing. Get the video, uh, you know, start start taking pictures. Let's, let's get this on, on camera. Let's get this on, on film. You're doing it. You're doing great. Every word's an encouragement. Well, I think that needs to be the attitude, the mindset we start developing about our Christian faith. When someone comes to faith in Jesus, when we come to faith in Jesus, we need to realize that it's going to take some wobbling. We're going to fall down at times. We're going to fail at times. But God's grace is there through us to encourage us to say, let's get back up. That was great. You're doing great. You're, you're, you're on the path toward growth. Now let me just say, if you have a child, an individual, who continually, constantly, never tries to get up and walk, never grows, never matures, there's probably something wrong. Not to, not to blame the child. There's some physical issues or something like that. There's some things that need to be addressed. You would what? You'd bring in the specialist. You'd bring in the doctor. You'd have the child evaluated. You'd, you'd search for ways to, to, to understand what's wrong in that situation. And that's the case with Christian walk as well. If a person's 10 years into their Christian faith is right where they were 10 years before, there's probably something wrong there in terms of their walk, their relationship with Jesus. It may be that there wasn't ever a relationship to begin with. It may be that, that they're not growing in the Spirit, they're not listening to the Spirit. It may be any number of things. What I'm trying to say is I'm not trying to suggest that it's okay to just stay an infant your whole life as a baby, as a Christian. But there is that process of growing, and we need to be mindful of that. Grace allows us to be mindful of that. Grace allows us because we see that God is doing work in us, and he's also doing work in others. The goal at the end of the day is not to be a better person. That's not the goal of Christianity. The goal of Christianity is to be conformed to the image of Jesus in a relationship with him. That's the goal. Not to become a better citizen, a better church member. Those things may be consequences of what we're going through, but at the end of the day, they're not the goal. The goal is a relationship with Jesus, growing in that relationship. Every relationship you have changes who you are. Every relationship you have grows or it dies. Okay. And it's no different than your relationship with Christ. Either it's going to grow or it's going to become nothing. 
It can't stay still. Grace allows us to see that that's not on our shoulders. It's how Christ is working to transform us, to work in our hearts and minds. Ultimately, then, that all comes together to allow us to stand firm. Verse 1 of chapter 4. So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and my crown, in this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Knowing all of these truths about grace, knowing the freedom that it instills, knowing the transformation that it brings, knowing the, 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 the fact that, that there's nothing we can do to, to build on it. There's nothing we can do to diminish it. It's God's working through us. Knowing all those things, stand firm. Have confidence. It's not on your shoulders anyway. It's God's grace working through you that brings a transformation. Archimedes, the famous mathematician, said, give me a lever and a place to stand and I can move the world. This mathematical, this, this physics principle, I think, has spiritual connotations to it as well. God has given us the lever. The lever is the gospel message. That's, that's the, what we communicate about the truth. That God is inviting you to a relationship. God has already done everything that's necessary for that relationship to take place. God is offering you a connection. God is offering you a change. God is offering you a future and a hope and life. God is offering to, to move you from being an enemy to being a son or a daughter. God is offering you all of these realities. He's reaching out. That's the gospel message. That's the lever. How do we trigger that lever? How do we... How do we Move that lever. How do we move the world around us? By the place to stand, which is His grace. It's what He has accomplished that we stand on that then moves the lever of the truth of the gospel. And let me just say, if you're here this morning, you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Then according to Scripture, not my opinion, not anything I would ever want to say myself, but according to Scripture, you're lost and without hope. You will spend eternity separated from God. But the good news is, He didn't leave us in that situation. We behold the Lamb hanging on the cross who died so that we might have life. And we surrender to the resurrected Lamb who reigns now and forevermore. The one who alone can save us. And as we do that, as we experience that, we find life. And we find courage to face a chaotic world with the truth that Jesus saves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. Thank you for each person here. God, I thank you for uh, the testimony of Brock earlier. God, I pray you help each one of us to grow in our understanding of you, to grow in our relationship, our connection with you. God, help us to never um, 
try and walk with our feet in, in the two worlds, but to instead walk as transformed individuals. God, I pray that if there's anyone here who does not have a relationship with you, I pray that you'd draw them, that they would respond in faith, that they'd call out to you for salvation. Because we know, as you promised in Romans, that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Lord, please go with us this week. Help us to walk with, with courage and with hope and with joy because of what you've done, what you continue to do, and what you will do in our lives through your grace. In Christ's name I pray.